The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for episode 38 of The Murder in My Family. If you find and enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast so that the show can continue to grow and reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderinmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at murderinmyfam or by searching for The Murder in My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. Thank you, and now on with the show. Through the first 37 episodes of this podcast, we've discussed heartbreaking cases of every kind. While each case is unique, the common thread linking every episode together is that for every murder we discuss, a family member of that victim is missing their loved one. In every episode of The Murder of My Family, you hear from those family members who open up and share with us their dark and sad journeys. In episode one of The Murder of My Family, Bill Thomas recounted how his sister Kathy's 1986 murder became the first in a series of murders in Virginia dubbed the Colonial Parkway Murders. Mike, at the risk of sounding like every other proud big brother uh, around the world, Kathy was an amazing person. She was 27 years old at the time of her death, and she'd already accomplished a great deal. So if, if you're picturing Kathy in your mind, you have to picture uh, this incredibly vibrant, um, amazing, funny, brilliant person. Uh, she had bright red hair. In episode six... Mike and Becky Patty talked about the heartbreaking murder of their granddaughter, Libby German, who was murdered alongside her friend, Abby Williams, in Delphi, Indiana, in February 2017. Um, Libby was a people person. She uh, um, an athletic. She was involved in everything. She wanted to try everything. She tried to make people happy. And the rest of the time, uh, usually it was weekends, um, it was family. When she wasn't into sports and stuff, it was family and friends. In episode 14, Mona Caller talked about her sister Anita Dunn's senseless 2016 murder in Missouri and detailed how the murderer in that case had a history of murder. As she was the older sister, I um, didn't grow up with the same friends as she did. Um, she would take me places. Uh, end up dropping me off. I was probably the little sister that nagged her a lot. Had to share a room with her as she was growing up. We always, as far as closeness, <laughs> you know, always had our jokes together and uh, teased other family members. Good sense of humor. We uh, spent a lot of time enjoying music, the same music. In episode 25, Connie Land shared her frustration with the investigation and handling of her daughter Sydney Land's 2016 murder in Las Vegas. Sydney was just, she was just a really beautiful girl. She 
didn't have an enemy in the world. And she was funny and quirky and, you know, um, she was just a, a great, a great daughter. She was quiet, but she was still stubborn. But she had this really loving element about her. These four cases run the gamut as far as details and developments go. In Kathy Thomas's case, it's possible serial killers escaped justice for over three decades. In Libby German's case, despite audio and video of the killer, there's no indication that police are any closer to identifying him. In Anita Dunn's case, an arrest was made, and the legal process played out quickly, resulting in a conviction. In Sidney Land's case, there's a strong suspect, yet due to possible mishandling of the case or corruption, an arrest hasn't been made yet. These four cases are just a small portion of the cases we've covered on this podcast so far, but overall, they're representative of the cases that we discuss. When I found out that the families of Kathy Thomas, Libby German, Anita Dunn, and Sydney Land were all going to be together at the June 2019 CrimeCon convention, I felt that it would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to meet them all in person, to shake their hands, and give them a hug. I also thought it would be a great chance to see what was happening in each of their loved ones' cases. We sat down and recorded our conversation, and it was very enlightening. It seems as if for each family member I talked with, there were certainly updates to share. For some of the families, there was progress, or positive things to report. But for others, their cases were bogged down, or not moving. We cover a lot of ground in our Sunday afternoon conversation, and I'm so appreciative to Bill Thomas, Kelsey German, Mona Keller, and Connie Land for all taking time to talk with me once again, opening up about their experiences, experiences that have been both painful and sad for all of them. Please keep in mind that the conversation you'll be listening to was recorded in a busy hotel with lots of stuff going on. We didn't have a studio or fancy recording equipment, so the audio quality isn't excellent, but I've cleaned it up as much as I can. With that being said, I hope that listeners find the conversation itself trumps any sound issues. You'll hear that conversation in its entirety in just a few moments. As a listener of The Murder of My Family, you understand the impact a murder can have on the lives of those around the victim. The impact of a loss like that touches more people than most realize, and the pain of those who are closest to the victim never really goes away. That's one of the focuses of another true crime podcast I'd like to invite you to check out. It's called Status Pending. It's hosted by Heather Wright and Scott Fuller, who I've worked with in the past on some of the cases similar to those you hear about on this show. Status Pending analyzes unsolved and unresolved cases. They feature a new case each month and break down each case into a three-episode chapter. Status Pending explores not only the facts of the case, but also delves into theories and the larger issues surrounding their mysteries. Scott and Heather also speak to people who knew the victim, as well as experts in all sorts of areas within criminology. If you're a true crime addict, Status Pending is a must-listen. It's put together well and includes guests, 911 calls, interviews, and more. I also enjoy how in-depth it goes with each victim, and it's compiled in a respectful manner. So be sure to check it out. That's Status Pending, available to subscribe to and listen to everywhere. My sister was murdered uh, back in May of 2016. Uh, my name is Kelsey German. I'm from Delphi, Indiana, which is pretty close to Lafayette. Uh, my sister was murdered in February of 2017. I'm Connie Land. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada, and my daughter, Sydney Land, was murdered October 27, 2016. And I'm Bill Thomas. I just moved from West Hollywood, California to Norfolk, Connecticut big change to a very small, pretty town, and my younger sister, Kathy, was murdered in October 1986 uh, as part of a series of murders that they refer to as the Colonial Parkway Murders. And so everybody here has been either a guest uh, on the podcast, uh, so it's great to get everybody in one location together. Um, Now, Kelsey's grandparents actually came on the episode we did with her uh, about her uh, but I, Kelsey is just an awesome go-getter that's really out there so I wanted to have her come on and talk about uh, Libby's case 
So just to recap, uh, Bill, Kathy's case was episode one. Right. Um, Kelsey, Libby's case was episode six. Anita's case was episode 14. And Sydney's case was episode 25. So, all right, so if anybody listening will want to go back and listen to these, any of these episodes, um, they'll know where they can find them. And we'll put notes in there and everything else. Um, but I guess if we can start off, I guess in the order of the episodes, if you want to start off, Bill, just like a brief, we, we talked obviously about the case in, in more detail on the show, but give us a, a, a brief description of where things started to where they are now and where the case is at today. Okay. Well, the Colonial Park murder involves the murder of four young couples, and two of the cases are FBI cases, and two of the cases are Virginia State Police cases. And so we're dealing with both agencies. At this point in June 2019, we find ourselves at a very frustrating crossroads um, for reasons that we, the families, don't completely understand. There are eight families impacted by this case. The FBI is freezing us out. They have not spoken to us in 18 months. They have refused to take our calls or texts or emails. And they, except for a condolence call when my dad died a couple of months ago, um, they refused to speak to us. Um, this is a complete reversal from where things had been over the last 10 years where I was speaking to our FBI agent uh, no less than once a week, sometimes uh, several times per week. And we actually had a, a good-natured policy that if I hadn't heard from her by Friday in a given week, and I'm talking about for several years in a row, if I hadn't heard from her by Friday, we made a point of talking for an hour every single Friday to discuss where things were with the case. We're, so we're not clear at all what's happening with the Colonial Parkway murders at this point. I have to say the Virginia State Police have been more communicative than the FBI, but the FBI are essentially the lead agency for a lot of levels, and we're, we just find ourselves at a very frustrating crossroads. And, and we're going to flip that point a little bit and go to Kelsey, because where you've been going through this for 30 years, your sister's case is two years old. Tell us a little bit about how things are in that, where they were on day one to where they are now. Well, in the beginning, my sister actually got a video of her and Abby's killer. Um, so we have his voice and his face, and um, that was a sketch. But then about a month ago, they came back and said, well, hey, the sketch isn't the right sketch. So right now we have a totally different sketch and some more audio and uh, a better video to kind of go off of now. So now we're working with starting completely over from where we were in the beginning. And do you feel that they have been very cooperative with the family? Are they keeping you updated? I know they were up there on stage, which is a good thing that they're with your uh, grandfather up on stage and you talking about it. Have they been cooperative in, in telling you guys what's going on and, and keeping you updated? Oh, yeah. They definitely tell us um, as much as they can that they're allowed to tell us. Um, we talk with them. My grandpa talks with them probably once a week, so... We're pretty close with them. I'm able to text them and be like, hey, I'm having a really bad day, and they'll talk with me about it um, when it's in regards to my sister. So we're really close with our um, law enforcement right now. So really and cool. so it's opposites. Where you're getting froze out and shut down, you feel like they are still open with you and talking with you, which I always find bizarre. You think there's like a uniform procedure and, and the way they handle stuff, but I, that's not the case um, and as far as Nina's case, uh, I, I think what's interesting is when it comes to you, Connie, you're on at the opposite ends of spectrums because with your case, you had a conviction, you had a wrap-up, whereas in Connie's case, you haven't had, there's, there's a good possibility that you know what happened, but you're, it's not happening where it's getting closed up. So if you can just start off and talk about how it ended up that the conviction came in your case, I'd like to wrap it up on your end to where things haven't been able to materialize in that case. Well, and we were very blessed. Our local, um, she lived in Joplin, Missouri, and the Joplin Police Department, um, she was... Um, 
reported to be missing by her landlord and his wife, who she had worked with, his wife. And um, after we spoke with the Joplin Police Department and uh, they began investigating, then they quickly determined that her landlord had an outstanding warrant for drug possession and uh, came to find out that he was on parole for murder in Tennessee. He had spent 25 years in prison in Tennessee for second-degree murder. And he was released in 2008, and in 2016, uh, they followed the trail, uh, and he had murdered her, strangled her, and thrown her into a uh, mine shaft. And uh, they followed her pinging from her phone and located her there. So he was arrested within four days, and he confessed, video everything that happened, video his confession. And uh, we went to trial probably a little over a year, year and a half later. And uh, within 27 minutes, the jury convicted him of first-degree murder without possibility of parole. Wow. So there's no such thing as closure, obviously, that you had a, a verdict, a... Yes. Um, and that's what's an answer, hard for... <coughs> Myself and Anna, my niece, is to hear everyone else's stories on your podcast. I, I can't imagine what you all are going through. I can imagine 30 years waiting for answers and even not getting them now. So I feel very blessed that we had a wrap up of this. Do you mind if I ask a question? You brought up something really interesting. Closure. For me personally, and everyone else may, their, your mileage may vary, as they say, I don't believe there is such a thing. But no. yeah. the, what, what do you all think? Do you think there can be closure? No. I don't think so. I don't feel any closure. I feel like we have him, we have him put away, but she's gone. I mean, the victim was my sister Anita Dunn. I'm not the victim. She is. And what type of, that's one concern I have is, you know, there's victim compensation programs. How are they going to compensate her? There is no compensation. You know, everything in the trial, all of the, uh, Tom Lang, I listened to Tom Lang's uh, session here at CrimeCon, and all of the evidence wasn't put in. Uh, Everything we know about him and his wife, is hearsay. Yeah. That's not right either. No, it's not. Yeah. And especially now that he's been convicted, you should have full access. And I'm having difficulty with that. I have all the police reports, but, you know, we don't have her autopsy. I'm really having difficulty I getting find that. that shocking because... And I know other families have run into the same problem. I have a copy of my sister's autopsy report, Gee, the, really? the family version. But in Virginia, where Kathy and the other victims were killed, you have a right to the autopsy Absolutely. Report. I think it's shocking yes. that in many states around the country, you can't get a copy of your loved one's autopsy report. They give you the, the, the cleaned-up version. In other words, no graphic photographs and that sort of thing. There are diagrams. And I... Quite frankly, I had my older brother, who's a doctor, explain some of the terms to me. I'm just a civilian. But I'm shocked that we can't get police reports. We can't get, in some states, you can't get an autopsy. In Virginia, thankfully, we had a right to uh, an autopsy report. And I spoke to the chief medical examiner, and she was extremely helpful. They see themselves as victims' advocates. But that's Virginia. In, In another state, you're out of luck. Yes. In Missouri, it's uh, the decision of the coroner, and the coroner will not release it until the court system does, the prosecuting attorney. It's wonderful. She's fabulous. Um, I think her concern right now is he's appealing. I was In wondering. My discussions with the Department of Corrections are these murderers can appeal for the rest of their lives. There is no limit. Which leaves you with very little information. Very little. 
very little information. So in 50 years when he's still, you know, in 20 years when he's still appealing some crazy law, I still want to have an autopsy. I've read the autopsy. Right. And before the case was finished, but I have questions. And I want that autopsy. I say this respectfully. I, if there are people out there that are comfortable with the word closure, I have no problem with it. I find that everybody that talks about closure isn't one of us. Because it's still going on. Exactly. It will go on for the rest of our lives. Sure. But you'll always fight. You'll always fight an appeal. If you're going to get a letter when he's going up for appeal, if it goes back to court, people go, if they get a conviction, is there any sense of justice? No, because I'm going to go sit in and shred my daughter apart. I'm going to watch these people that did this to her. Yes. They're going to go after appeal, and I'm going to have to go before a parole board, and I'm going to have to, and that, that is just the second chapter of a living hell that we've had to deal with. There's no closure for anything. It's just a continued fight for the next chapter. So, no, there's never any closure, and, and the wounds are continually reopened for events that happen in our life when our loved ones should be there and they're not. Yes. And these, these criminals are being given all this treatment and all these special privileges yes. and all these things. We don't have any privileges. We have nothing. And we're fighting. And for our victims. Yeah. It's, it's we will spend so the rest of our lives fighting for our victims. It's, like, it's almost like the perpetrator's rights are maybe... No, Shane Valentine, the suspect, he's a person of interest. He was, uh, he was arrested after shooting up the occupied structure. He was given 7 to 10 years. I just got a letter from the Nevada, the Nevada State Parole Board. He's going up for parole in July for eligibility of parole in October. And he's a suspect in a, or a person of interest in a double homicide. And he will probably walk. So that's what I get to do is to try to keep this guy locked up in hopes that he doesn't get out and then they're having to try to catch him to bring him back in. And you, you have never been charged. In, in, in he's Europe. never been charged, but the problem is is there's a lot, of, a lot of serious corruption in our case where Shane has been protected by the police department. We found out that when he threatened to kill Sydney and Nehemiah Kaufman, the other victim, the police never retrieved the bullet that was found when he shot up the house. He said, I'm going to kill you. He shot into the house. They didn't retrieve the bullet to close the case down with eyewitnesses that heard him call him out and said he was a dead man. They said there was insufficient evidence. They closed the case. Three weeks later, Sydney and Nehemiah were found executed. It was my homicide detective that went back to the Kaufman residence where the original shooting began three weeks earlier to pull the ballistics out of the out of the house. Since our case, you know, we have the we have the autopsy report, we have the toxicology report. I didn't, we don't want photos, but we've got the diagrams and things. Interesting, the autopsy has Sydney in three different outfits: one in black pants, black shirt, hot pink bra. Another one is black pants, tan bra, or gray bra, maroon shirt. Another uh, bra is a tan bra. And what the criminal investigator that went to the crime scene, she said it was the most, it was the bloodiest crime scene I've ever seen. It was absolutely horrific. Well, I know that Sydney didn't die quickly. And she said, the lighting in the apartment was not very good when did the investigation. I would imagine the reason her clothing colors are different is because the blood dried and she looked different under the lights of the autopsy. She had been dead 36 hours before she did, so the blood was dried on her. What we have found out since we had done the podcast is there was a judge, Melanie Tobison, that had reached out to me in, in our investigation. What we have found out since then was that she and her daughter have been tied to the suspect, Shane Valentine, 18 months prior to the murder investigation, so that complicates things much further. She interfered in our investigation, and now she has she has done some very criminal activities in threatening the suspect kicked in his door and did some other things on that end. So it's just become so much more convoluted in our case. You know, we found out that the godfather of one of the suspects has participated, actively participated in the investigation. I found out two weeks ago that the detective, the, the homicide detective that was leaking information is still currently on the investigation. He hasn't been taken off. And I know being here at CrimeCon... I, I, they've severed all communication. The detectives will not talk to me. I have one sh- sergeant that will communicate with me, and he told me if I continue to talk to the media, he's going to have to distance himself from me. This is exactly the same no thing wonder. that's happened to us. Uh-huh. I the, think so, you know, too. The, the FBI cut off contact, not just with me, but all the people who 
I dare to criticize the pace of the investigation at the 30-year mark, mind you. Now, I stand by everything I said, but the FBI does not, and law enforcement in general, do not take criticism well. And they, this is sad to say, law enforcement is often extremely vindictive, and they sometimes start to treat family members who are outspoken as if somehow we're the enemy or we're the problem. And, you know, I haven't said this out loud yet, but I'm sure I will in an upcoming meeting. I've been handling the Colonial Parkway murders long, longer than any of you have been in the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And I'm not an expert on all matters related to this investigation, but the idea that they take the attitude, how dare I criticize the pace of their investigation 30 years on. My concern for you, Kelsey, is I want to see your case move forward. And as I said to you this morning, you know, again, we have electronic relationships, and it's so wonderful to be here with you to actually meet and be face-to-face. But as I said to you this morning, my biggest fear is I don't want you to be me for the years and I know, I said to you this morning, I know it's even hard for you at age 19 to even think about 30 years from now. But trust me, with with, with a little luck, you'll, you'll be happy and healthy 30 years from now. But I sure hope you're not sitting there with a nice case. And I'm so glad that right now, that's not what we're going through. Like, I'm really glad we have that really strong relationship with our law enforcement. Because I can never imagine going through that kind of thing. So, it's been a really... I, it's not a good experience, but the way that our law enforcement have worked with us has been good, considering what is going on. So, and during our, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it, and I, I'm an outsider just listening to our conversations, but I, I can't imagine what any of you have felt because it's never happened to me. But if it was two years, thirty years, or anywhere in between, I think that would be an eternity. So I can't imagine if it's only been two years in your case or thirty years in your case how hard that is. It, it seems like so long. Well, and what is it? John Walsh from, from America's Most Wanted for many years says this is the, the club that no one wants to be invited right. to join. No one never expected to be in. Exactly. And there's 200,000 local case workers in the United States today that have never been involved. And so the four of us are just four of us. And the last any of you all need is to not uh, have the cooperation and the respect of all the people that are trying to solve the crimes. Um, or the last anybody that, that is in your shoes need is for them to, to be able to have this stuff happen on top of the words to kind of or outcome. It seems like you shouldn't have to fight with law enforcement and stuff like that. To, um, to get some kind of results. And, and you shouldn't have to face consequences for being outspoken. You know, if, if there's corruption in your case, you shouldn't have to worry or hear they're going to talk to me, tell me what's going on with Sydney's case, because I said something about what's going on here, you shouldn't worry about Then You shouldn't have to worry about um, criticizing the FBI and having been frozen out by that. I just think that's very... I, I think... And I can't speak for all of you. I think we all respect law enforcement. Yeah, we all support absolutely. them. We all want them to do the best they can. But we all know that they are human and they have yeah. egos and they have, they're not perfect. So um, that's just one thing that really jumps out to me that I hate to see hurdles thrown in, in the way of... After a while, it begins to feel like a fight. To fight for access, fight for information, fight for updates, and it's incredibly frustrating. And you know, I don't consider myself or our, our eight families critics of law enforcement. We're pulling for their success. Yes, we yes, want always. to help solve the human murders. But it can't be a shock to offensive law enforcement that as the years tick and you can't get information and you can't get access that you're going to be uh, you know, pushing back respectfully but pushing back right well and I think that it's we all have a common goal if it's the detectives that have a common goal of, of finding who did this 
We obviously do. There should be some accountability and some cross-checks in place. If there is something that we see that isn't right, then it's better to address that, to keep these cases in the forward motion of being solved. It's not like I'm against the police. I have great people that are working on this case, I would imagine. But, but when you see things that are not right, how can you sit back and go, I'm not going to say anything. There's some serious discrepancies, and at the end of the day, I'm ultimately responsible for making sure that my daughter receives justice and that you know we keep this not from getting derailed on every... But that doesn't mean that the police are right. It doesn't yeah. mean that the police are bad, and, and we are all on the same side, but there needs to be some accountability with the things yeah. that are taking place. And it, it seems like... so. On your end, and so far everything's going smoothly, and we hope you never get to the where there's any of this going on. How did you feel that came to a closure reasonably quickly in Nita's case? How did you feel about how they handled it? Was there anything they dropped the ball? It was it was unbelievably fast. I mean, they had every officer, they had the FBI in there, they had the sheriff's department, search and rescue. Uh, dogs. They had uh, seventy witnesses, or you know, uh, tips, and they tracked down everything. But ultimately, it led back to the two people that filed that missing persons report. And uh, you know, during the investigation, they just, you know, they gave us information of where we're going east of town to search. And I want you to know because there'll probably be media there. But that's all we can tell you. So they were very limited, but they kept us surprised of what they were doing with no definitive information. Um, and then they called, of course, asking for some descriptions and uh, that they were bringing in divers. So it was just phenomenal. I mean, 11 o'clock at night, our chief of police offered to come 30 minutes out to our house. No, we'll come. I mean, they were just fabulous in our law enforcement agencies, all of them. I've spoken with our sheriffs, Jasper County Sheriffs, and uh, they were very involved. And then uh, all of our prosecuting attorneys, the entire office, they, throughout the trial process, you know, that's a long, lengthy, I had no idea. And they met with us. There's information they kept for themselves and did not tell us until we were ready to go to trial. And I understood all of that, that they were on it. The victim, that's ab- victim's advocate uh, emailed me, called me, sat with me every day that we had a pre-trial hearing. I was at every hearing, and they were there, and unbelievable support from that Jasper County prosecuting attorney's office. It sounds like your sister's case. It works the way it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. Picture perfect. And in listening to you, you know, our case stretches back so far. So We're actually far. before DNA, yes. before cell phones, yes. before CODIS, yes. before victims advocate. They didn't have any victims advocates yeah. 32 yeah. years ago. They didn't have any of that stuff. And so I was curious. Who was it that kept you informed as the in the early stages of, of the investigation? Was it uh, our chief of police? So it's a small enough department. Boy, it's funny. I sit there and I listen and I think to myself, if my parents could have taken this case away from the FBI 30 years ago, they would have because they're a nightmare. They're incredibly difficult to deal with. They want to know everything I know and everything I'm hearing. And we've really put ourselves out there in the last 10 yes. years to make us families easier to find. Yes. They'll, they'll pump me endlessly for information, and obviously we give them every tip we receive and so on. But when I ask the most basic questions, and I'm talking about questions I've been asking for answers for for 10 years, they will not answer the most basic Why? questions. They just refuse. You know, their claim is, in the, you know, you hear this, now till forever, it's an ongoing investigation. They don't want to compromise the case. After 30, after that's, 30 that's, years. That's, that's what they say. And, I, you know, I feel like at this point, our case, uh, Anita's case, really the relationship we had with our police officers mm-hmm. is like yours, Kelsey. Yeah. You know, we've got a good group there. Maybe it's because it's the smaller area. 
you know, they're, they all, you know, are involved with the community. Our Dublin Police Department is very involved, our Sheriff's Department, and not just with, you know, my sister's case, but with all their cases, they're very it's, involved. It's more hands-on. It is hands-on. They know, yes. know each other. They're investigators who are just fabulous to but tell us. I think even it's, now it's that our... Like, our county sheriff's department and our Indiana State Police are the ones that are doing most of the work. We only have a handful of FBI agents. So I think maybe that that could be part of it, too. So. That maybe when we... So why is the FBI involved? Because the FBI, when I asked them to participate in the investigation, because I felt like there were also connections to a current investigation that was going on, they told me that they didn't investigate homicides. They were in ours because ours are minors. Minus. So, okay. That's why. They have okay. a division who handle kidnapping and oh, okay. crimes against minors. Oh, okay. Okay. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you found out, or maybe when your parents found out, hey, the big mighty FBI is involved, that's a great thing. Right. You're saying now you wish that didn't happen. Yeah. Right. Well, and the reason our case was FBI from the very beginning is because Kathy and Becky, the first two victims, were found on federal property. They were in a national park. And that means that the National Park Service Police and the FBI handle it. And as Mike was saying, we regarded that as a good thing. Now, in retrospect, we do not regard that as a good thing. And I, one of the things I like about working with local law enforcement, and corruption is obviously you know, the serious downside, most of the time what I hear, though, is because local law enforcement is accountable to the community. And in some places... Sheriffs or other other heads of law enforcement agencies are actually elected, um, so you know you have some degree of influence to try to you know, keep abreast of what's happening with your loved ones' case, and they have some accountability to the community. And they are invested in that investigation. Every one of those officers were invested in finding my sister's killer. They did it. You know, I think that one of my investigators, I think one of my detectives, he's, he genuinely wants to solve this case. I think that when they got thrown into this case, they had no idea everything that was involved in it. And, you know, you want to you do right and you want to solve this. And you're looking at all these other variables that make it very difficult to try to solve something. So it doesn't mean he's bad. I think there's a lot of other things. I think my the one detective leaking information was bad, but I don't think my other detective is bad, and I think he genuinely wants to solve this. But you look at something that's so overwhelming and difficult to overcome, how do you get past all the obstacles and things that have been set along the way, and mistakes that have been made yes. all along the way? How do you get a conviction? How do you get this trial when so much yes. has happened? And so, you know, I think one of the reasons, thank you for inviting us and recommending us to come to CrimeCon, because as a mother feeling... The media is not supporting this. Not a lot of support from the police department. I'm alone, a little scared to death of who I'm going up against and who I'm looking at. I'm looking at a lion, and I will put on my shield, and I will go fight alone if I have to. But it's been very empowering and very comforting and insightful to be here this weekend to listen to all these different stories, meeting so many different people, and know, you know all the podcasts, all the speakers, all the different people that are here to support and promote and everybody here, they were all you know, advocates yes. for our for us. And that is nice to know. We're not alone and, and so you can go around you know, it's like you can <laughs> yeah, you, yes. you know, and so there's so many different things. So to me I feel much more encouraged in because of the because of this weekend. I feel much more encouraged and hopeful in getting the story out because I know once this story goes silent the story dies, and I cannot let it. I cannot let it die. Yeah. I, so, I feel exactly the same. Way. Yeah. I, it is great to hear other people's stories and listen, yeah. and maybe think, hey, we should try that. Yeah. Or I, even if it's just a, an inspiring yeah. story or a great outcome, you also get to meet the, the mighty Mike Morgan. The mighty Mike. Awesome. Awesome. Finally. Awesome to finally meet him. Yep. Well, one thing I wanted to close with was speaking of advocacy. See, I know you're all your family's best advocates, Casey's best advocates. Sort of just go around and, you know, this way. Just what have you all done in your own case uh, to sort of um, advocate for not just 
uh, your loved one's case, but maybe others that are in the same boat? Well, you know, one of the most exciting changes, and I think we've been reasonably effective with it, and I hope to continue to, to use these tools, social media has been unbelievable. And so our outreach to uh, the, the community in the, in the Williamsburg area where our, our cases occurred, you know, for a long time, I'd be talking to people in Virginia where I've never lived. People would say, oh my gosh, didn't they solve that case? People have this perception that you know, if they haven't heard about a case in a long time, they, they either stop thinking about it or they think, oh my gosh, somebody was arrested. So it has been so exciting for us to be able to you know, build a Facebook page and have you know, 6,000 followers, which is a lot in a place like Williamsburg and across the country, and to hear from people around around the country that are even around the world with expressions of support and what's going on with the case and what can we do to call um, and, and so, you know, I think about how much the, the opportunities for a group of families working together has changed for the better. And, you know, as you said, for, to come together in a place like Crime Time and I was very impressed when we kicked off the other day with Paul Bowles. And of course, it's fun to watch everybody go yes. crazy for a guy who's worked extremely hard to to uh, move the Golden State Killer and other cases forward. And in the first five minutes, he talked about being victim and family focused, and he talked about respect for the victims. And when you ask questions, remember these are not fictional stories; these are uh, real people. And um, and he also talked about genetic genealogy to try to figure out ways to keep DNA databases open because there's so many cases and there's so much potential there. And so in, in, in you know, I don't think he spoke for very many minutes um, when they weren't doing an eye over him. But I was so impressed with, with CrimeCon, how it's grown, and I think its focus remains on helping tell stories but also move cases and, and you came, Connie, with brochures made out. Um, what was your mission? My mission, I didn't, I didn't go into a lot of the different sessions. My mission solely was to hand out brochures, to share my story, to find contacts, to help get this out to the public. So honestly, I didn't experience CrimeCon to the magnitude that going in, sitting in sessions, because my full focus, I didn't leave the hotel not once. I haven't gone to see the city at all. My focus was here to meet people, to get the word out about Sydney's murder, and find resources just to help me keep it out there in a very big way. I know the only way this case will be solved is through exposure, and there will have to be some accountability. And so that was that was my goal. You know, it's interesting. We're all in different phases of our you know thirty years, you know two years. two years. I'm a little over two years. She was your sister, daughter. You know, and you already have a conviction. Um, for me, the truth is, Sydney will probably never go to court. That's the reality for me, and I'm okay with that. And so my fight is, I would hate to have it go to court and have evidence get it thrown out or they get acquitted or just have a, a DA that was corrupt and a judge and all the different things. There's so many obstacles in my way. I would hate to sit in a courtroom and watch the people that did this to her or potentially have done this to her get up and walk out of a courtroom. That would be very overwhelming for me. I'd rather not know than to do that. So for me, what I'm doing in pushing forward for Sydney is she's not the only one that's been a victim of the things that have happened, there are a lot of other victims. And so in exposing this, the Kaufman family, I'm fighting for them just as much as I'm fighting for Sydney. And so I think that if my advocacy, although my fight is very focused maybe on Sydney, the advocacy is to bring exposure to a case that really doesn't have a lot of ties to other corruption, but that will bring some accountability and cleaning up the department some accountabilities for some actions that maybe have been unethical and hopefully families that are victims won't be re-victimized and they will avoid having to go through what we've gone through because they don't have to fight that I have because I've got got a pretty relentless (laughs) relentless fight in me and so so for me that's the advocacy I think there's a much larger picture 
in this. It's been nice listening to Mona and the incredible things that she gets to do for her, you know, for her sister, and in honoring her and helping so many families in, in beautiful, supportive, and incredible ways. And I think that's the opportunity and a responsibility for all of us to be able to share our stories. If it saves a daughter, if it saves a relative, if it creates a better relationship that opens different lines of communication that may change paths that were not available. I it's I want to share this story and because I want it I want I want it to help people. That's what I want. And so that's kind of what I've done. You know, I know there's there's bigger things that I would like to do, but for now I'm just I'm an army of not a lot. I'm me. And so I'm trying to put an army together to help me go forward, you know, where I'm not carrying the weight on this on my own. And so I support my family and different things like that. But, you know, that's what, that's what we do. But I know that there's, I know that, I just know that there are bigger things that we get to do for, because of this experience and we would not have done so otherwise. And so what a gift that my daughter, her life and the tragedy that took place She's in a, an amazing place. I don't worry about her. And and we get to help so many families because of the sacrifice that she made in her life being taken. What a tribute. And I know, Kelsey, that your family has been very out there, very visible. You've been to crime you now. Tell us a little bit about everything you and your family have been doing to try and this. So we do a lot of media um, outreach. We talked to HLN. We've been to Dr. Phil and all these bigger name places. We also do um, my social media advocacy. Um, I'm very active on Twitter and Instagram, and I use all of that for. Um, it creates a support system for me, um, as well as going to Crime Con. And um, also, my grandparents are creating a park in honor of the girls, um, just to remind our community that. The girls still are here, and no matter what, that we have their backs just as much as they have ours. So we do a lot to reach out to the public and talk with different kinds of people and reach out to different demographics. And so that's been really cool to meet people and talk with them about their stories and share our story with them at the same time. One thing I've noticed about you, you're everywhere, and I think it's great, is um, uh, the sister survivors. Okay. Mm-hmm. Seem to have a real yes. soft spot for you, and I think it's great. Yes. They, yeah. You know, they, they, you know, I see your interaction um, electronically, as we were yes. saying yeah. earlier, and I just uh, there's something about that that just makes me smile. Yeah, my relationship with them has definitely evolved since last time. So I met them here. Um, we were in Nashville, and. From the time I met Michelle, meeting siblings of victims or even victims who are survivors or anybody who has a story to tell, it's been um, great to create that bond with them. And I think specifically them, I've created a larger bond, very strong bond with them, more than I've done with anyone else. And that's been really spectacular to see as it grows and it continues to grow and as they help us to continue to advocate and as we help them help others it's been a really good journey and you're helping with Anita's case moving forward to create laws to change laws well moving forward um, you know my goal in, in knowing the history of this murderer I want everybody to know her story. I want everyone to know what he did to her, what he did to his first victim, because chances are he'll do it again if he was ever out. And just like with your cases, Bill, you know, they continue to murder. Sure. <laughs> we can't have that. So my, you know, my goal, beginning very small. Uh, is introducing legislation uh, to have a violent offender register. If you're on parole for first and second degree murder, then you're on a register uh, very similar to the sex offender register. Um, because our, you want to know if a murderer is living. Right, we had no idea. He was no. her landlord. She worked with his wife 
she might have decided not to move there had she known. Exactly. No kidding. Sure. No kidding. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Had we known. And, you know, just before she died, she spoke with her her mother-in-law that he was coming over there and creeping her out. You know, she was getting out the heck out of there. And yet, here's a, a, a that's your murderer saying. that, <laughs> you know, if you had something like a, a registry, and the sex offender registry is not perfect, but at least you have some tools yes. for parents and community members to know that there's a sex offender living in a neighborhood. Yes. Why shouldn't we know about a murderer? A uh, murderer. Yeah. These are the worst of the worst. You know, several states, Montana, Oklahoma, Kansas, Ohio, Indiana, you know, all of these have a violent offender register, varying degrees. Some are very, I mean, they list everyone, manslaughter, uh, stalking, there's just a wide variety. You know, I'm starting very small. Missouri has nothing. It was very, you know, in, in my opinion, you were successful. Uh, my legislator, uh, Lane Roberts, presented uh, the, legis- uh, the bill, the House Bill 729, Anita's Law, and we went through two committees, and it passed through completely uh, without any issues. Never made it out of committee to the, well, it was very late in the session when I went up to testify. So we're going to refile again in November and uh, keep moving. Well, having testified in Jefferson City, <laughs> yes. I'm sure they'll give you a friendly Yes, they were wonderful. Reception. I had a very short period of time to get out just what I needed. Uh, but they passed the Judiciary Committee is where I testified at. The second time's the charm, I think. Yes, yes, yeah. I think so. Well, it sounds like all of you are not giving up. You're all continuing to go do what you're doing, and um, you know I just appreciate you coming on and sharing all of your experiences and stories, and uh, coming on to talk about it. We should thank you for all you That's do. That's right, for all you do. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Uh, it, like I said, I, I'm when I can help somebody speak about something um, like this, you know, happy to give whatever voice I can and help spread the word about this stuff because it's. It's not going away, you know, unfortunately, and there's other people out there that are going through the same thing. So. Well, for the benefit of your listeners, he's even taller and better looking in person. That's right. I've got a feature for radio. Um, I really, again, I can't thank you all enough. It's, to have you all in one spot, I, I just wanted to take advantage of this and be able to talk, and um, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoyed this episode, please introduce a friend of the podcast and invite them to listen. And before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.